Life Issues with Vicky Gibbons on UCB1. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. I'm Vicky Gibbons, and we start by recollecting the hobbies our mums and dads were deeply committed and invested in. But we found puzzling, or maybe even feigned interest. Some train spotting, collecting China tea sets, and what about endless visits to garden centres? How is it the appeal of such hobbies, which were once a mystery to us as a child, perhaps then become our own activities of escapism as adults? Richard Littledale knows this all too well. He's the author of Tales of an Undergardener, Finding God in the Garden. And Richard, we should say this isn't some kind of mystical experience of discovering God wandering in your own garden. No, no, not at all. And uh, if you had asked me 10 years ago what book I would not expect to write, it would definitely be one about gardening. (laughs) I think if my father were alive today, he would be laughing at the sound of this interview. He really would, because uh, I was the most reluctant fellow gardener you could possibly imagine when I was growing up. Well, I think, at least from your childhood experiences of what you describe in the book, I can definitely relate to that sort of Garden centres are a great place to meet friends and have a cup of tea and a catch-up. The idea of then venturing to nurseries where there are plants and seedlings and no cups of tea, this was kind of your reality as a child, wasn't it? Yeah, and I can't believe I've now become that person who, when he gets to the garden centre, is actually quite excited about going out of the shop and into the outdoor bit where the plants are (laughs) and then going up and down with a trolley and picking them like sweets off a counter. You know, this is all completely alien to me. And um, when, when I first discussed with the team at Authentic about writing the book, you know, one of the things we said at the outset was, let's put that on show. Let's put that on show, the fact that this is all new to you and that you are learning as much by your mistakes as by your successes. Because I think, you know, when I read a book, I do rather hate being talked down to. (laughs) When I read a book, I love it if somebody is going to be honest with me. And so that's the way I wanted the book to come across. It absolutely does. And you actually draw us beautifully into the garden in terms of the pictures and the imagery. Even the illustration of the book is absolutely relatable to as well. So take us back. How how old is Project Garden now? Uh, I started Project Garden in the spring of 2019, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's what, uh, two and a bit years old now. Yeah. so it all came about, I as have always been a very reluctant gardener. Uh, the back in November of 2017, I lost my wife, Fiona. We'd been married for 30 years. Uh, she died at the age of 53 of cancer. And that first year of bereavement, you kind of stumble through in a kind of miasma, I think. You know, people are good and God is good and you do chart your way through it. But there's something about the second year of bereavement that is so different. Because I think by that stage, you've had all the anniversaries. You've had the first Christmas, the first Easter, the first birthday, the first wedding anniversary. And now this is the new reality. Now this is what you are dealing with for from now on. And uh, I was finding the, the lighter evenings, especially very, very difficult. The loneliness was palpable. I think in the winter, you can make the house cosy, you can hunker down, you can almost forget about it. Uh, But the summer evenings with the the light streaming in and the windows and doors open, somehow it all seemed that much harder. And uh, 
as we'll probably talk about, you know, I then found this kind of solace in the garden, mm. found it was a place I wanted to be, which took me by surprise. But my goodness, I'm grateful to God for it. I really am. Help us understand a bit about your house, how obviously it operates, how you're connected to the church community. Okay, so I live in a church house or a mense as it's known. And uh, when Fiona and I moved in here in 2016, there had been a church team had worked on it. Churches are great for these kind of things. They get a gang of volunteers together. They had cleared the garden. They put a new shed in and it all looked very welcoming. Not full, but welcoming. Uh, that was 2016. The next two and a bit years went by, you know, all sorts of very difficult stuff had been going on in my own life. And by the early spring of 2019, the garden was a picture of neglect. The garden was a reflection of what was going on in my own mind and heart, which was a messy place, a bit of a neglected place, not a place that was full of life. And so here was this garden on which lovely church volunteers had worked as a gesture of love and welcome to their new pastor, which had now become something else entirely, which I guess was another driver for at least trying to tackle it. But I did so with the most enormous reluctance. I was reluctant because of my childhood experiences when my dad was a brilliant gardener and so was my mum, but I couldn't care less, frankly. Um, I, I also... Um, never been good at any kind of DIY. You know, most things that I fix to a wall fall off quite soon afterwards. You know, this was not something I embarked on with any degree of confidence at all. Now, I'd had a meeting with a couple of people from the church, uh, one of whom heads up our flower team. So when the meeting was over, I went out with them behind the back door. I said, just look at it. Where on earth do I start? And they said, well, look, you know, you need to clear a little bit at a time. When you've cleared it, you need to put bark chippings down so the weeds don't come back. And then you need to choose some things to plant. So literally, you know, one morning I got out of the shed my very poor selection of tools, which was a kind of half-sized fork and a slightly broken trowel because, frankly, I didn't really care about this stuff. And I started to clear this bramble-strewn patch. By the time I spent a couple of hours there, I had, you know, bleeding cuts all up and down my arms. <laughs> I had a great big pile of stuff I'd pulled out. I had a bare canvas. But do you know what, Vicky? I felt terrific. Mm. I really felt good. You know, I felt like I was tired for physical reasons rather than emotional ones, which was a change at the time. I'd achieved something, you know, and I went straight off to the garden centre and came back with some plants and put them in, most of which died subsequently, but maybe we'll come back to that. But it was a good start. It was a good start. You know, and the next morning I opened the curtains and I looked out at this very small patch of the garden that had been transformed. And I thought, oh, I did that. I did that and I've made it different. You know, when you are bereaved, it's very easy to feel as if it's something that has been done to you. It's been sort of visited upon you, if you like, however true or not that might be. One of the lovely things for me about gardening has been that it's a way that I can change my environment rather than my environment changing me. You know, I can roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty and get tired. But actually, when I come away from it, I have made something different about my immediate surroundings. And that felt so, so good and still does now. So it was much more than just being a place of escapism then, wasn't it? Yes, because actually, uh, and I think this comes across in the book, it's, 
it's every bit as much about process as it is about results. You know, the garden is a project that is never finished. You know, I started referring to this from very early on when I talked about it on social media as hashtag project garden. You know, it has been that. As a kid, I always loved a project, you know, whether it was making a model kit or whether it was writing a storybook. Or, I always loved that. And so I think for me, the appeal is not just in the results, which are lovely, but it's in the process. It's in that act of transformation. And, you know, I'm quite a sort of, well, I say a tidy person. My family would utterly disagree with that. But I am the kind of person who likes to sort of get things done. I love to cross things off lists. You can never put a tick next to the thing that says, do the garden, like it's done, because it's never done. But what I'm finding, to my own surprise, is that I actually love that. You know, I could go outside right now. It's raining, actually, but I could go outside right now and I could find half a dozen little jobs to do. I could go outside tomorrow. There'd be another half a dozen. And I actually love that because I think when you're in an environment, as I am as a busy church leader, where you have a lot of lists of things that need to be done, people that need to be seen, things that need to be organised, having something that is gently ongoing in the background and something where you are not entirely in charge of it is tremendously therapeutic. And I think, you know, one of the things that gardening has taught me, which I always knew, but I feel it now, is that we work in partnership with God. Mm. You know, I called it the under gardener because I'm not really the gardener, Vicky. God's the gardener. He's the one who does the clever stuff. You know, he's the one who takes green shoots and brown roots and turns them into every colour under the sun. All I do is stick them in the ground and water them once in a while. Uh, and that's been so good in, in so many ways. And in the book, you talk about this idea of as we are co-workers with God, remembering how important it is that God made us, you know, that idea of God having dirty fingernails, just as we do when we muck in yeah. in the garden. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with so many of these pieces of theology, you know, I'm 33 years into being a pastor now. You know, I've talked about this time and again in the pulpit. I've talked about stewardship and I've talked about partnership and I've talked about God as the creator. The difference is that now I'm feeling those things in a very visceral way. Um, there's one little chapter in the book. It talks about uh, a little acer tree. And I'm so inexperienced at this gardening lark. I really shouldn't do it, Vicky, but I go into garden centres and I am drawn like a magnet to what I call the hospital shelf you know, where they have the things that have got blown over or damaged or whatever. They should be, really be reserved for experienced gardeners, not people like me who don't know what they're doing. But nonetheless, you know, I buy these things and is, I bring them home. Is your compassionate and, heart. <laughs> oh, that must be it, yes. <laughs> and there was this little broken acer that I brought home with lovely kind of um, papery grey-green bark and uh, it would eventually have lovely orangey leaves. It's called Orange Dream. And it wasn't in a very good state, you know, so I soaked it overnight and then I planted it and I've refreshed the compost. And uh, I actually ended up bringing it almost next to the back door so I can see it every time I go out of the house. And I've started really tending it and really caring about whether it flourishes or not, which God has been doing for me since the day I was born. Mm. And I kind of know that, but now I feel it differently. You know, uh, this, this huge arc of what salvation is all about that stretches way above our heads, for me, is writ small in, in the confines of that pot. 
because I've now become the one who's tending that plant. And, and so it ends up mirroring the big themes of love and compassion and salvation within the confines of a pot. Mm. And that's so good for us. So good for us. Earlier, you spoke of the importance, if we are co-workers with God, the importance of having the right tools as well. And that was an education in in itself for me when I was reading your book. I mean, for me, yes, I get the trowel, the spade, the fork, those are kind of things I'm used to. The daisy grubber. And what about this Japanese tool that you seem extremely fond of? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of almost accidentally discovered Japanese gardening tools. And uh, there's a great elegance to them, you know, made in a very simple way with beautiful craftsmanship. And yeah, I've rather fallen in love with one called a hori hori knife. Hori hori apparently means diggy diggy, which you've got to love anyway, haven't you? A diggy diggy knife. So it looks a little bit like a trowel, except it has a point on it and it has one sharp edge and one serrated edge. And, uh, Actually, I could do a whole morning's weeding in the garden with just that, you know, because you can dig things out, you can prune with it. So I I love that. Now, one of the things I also talk about in the book, I'm a little bit of an addict for gadgets. I do love a gadget. I love a gadget with a flashing light on it and a nice box it comes in and all of that. Now, I could have gone absolutely nuts with gardening gadgets. You know, I could have bought every power tool under the sun. And I haven't bought any. Uh, you know, I didn't buy a leaf blower. I've not bought hedge trimmers. I've just recently got rid of my powered lawnmower and replaced it with a hand-pushed one. Because what I'm finding is that I love the rhythm of doing these things by hand. Mm. One of the things that emerges in the book is the story of uh, my little meadow. Uh, when I first arrived here, I had a driveway, and next to the driveway was a big patch of gravel where a previous minister had parked a caravan. I eventually decided to get rid of that uh, without the power tools, that was about three weeks worth of you know putting it in wheelbarrows <laughs> and distributing it elsewhere, then digging it over again over the course of three or four weeks. And then I planted it with a wild meadow seed. And uh, it's beautiful. You know, it comes up in the sun. We have this lovely waving grass and a few splashes of cornflowers and poppies in the midst of it. When it came to the time to cut that down, which you have to do once a year with a meadow, uh, you know, it breaks your heart a bit to do it. You have to do it. I couldn't bear to take a power tool to it. So I bought a Japanese scythe and, you know, I did it on my hands and knees and it took about an hour. And I loved that because this this little patch that I had laboured on literally from the first spade going in, I was down there on my hands and knees tending it. And it's back to that word tending again, you know, which God Mm. does with us. And I think if we then get to do it ourselves, we start to understand it in a different way. I certainly feel that that's the case. You're listening to Life Issues on UCB. My guest, Richard Littledale, who's written the book Tales of an Undergardener, Finding God in the Garden, and it's published by Authentic Media. What I drew from the 52 tales of faith and gardening and an awful lot of problem solving from what I read reading between the lines as well is actually the more projects, small projects that you broke the garden down into it sounds like your confidence actually grew from feeling like this amateur to actually feeling more confident in having a hand in God's work. And I just, I wonder if you can help us as you reflect in the book about how Peter inspires you, because there's a beautiful moment where you talk about fungi and faith and folly and how you relate to Peter. 
Yeah, I, I, I can't wait to meet Peter in heaven. I really can't. He's my kind of person, I think, you know, because he's so enthusiastic, isn't he? And he's going to be the best disciple and he's going to be the closest follower and he's always the one who wants to speak up. And then, of course, he falls spectacularly flat on his face, you know, with the denial. And, uh, and there's a lovely little moment in the, in the very sort of back end of Luke's gospel where we're told that there is a private meeting between Jesus and Peter. We don't know what happened in that meeting. We don't know what words were exchanged, but we do know that after that, he was back in the fold again. And that is a tale of redemption. It's a tale of, you know, mistakes being put right. And I have found myself much more comfortable with making mistakes since I started this project. You know, I think whenever I've attempted not very well, DIY in the house. I hate it because if it goes wrong, everybody can see it. I guess in the garden, I think, well, it's only me and the dog who's got to put up with it, so it doesn't really matter. But, of course, with that then has come a confidence. So I've, you know, created a pond. I made a coffee table out of an old uh, cable drum, uh, turned a pallet into a, a planter for summer flowers, turned an old chair into an alpine garden, you know, all kinds of things like that. But I think also... To my own surprise, I found I don't feel overly precious about things that go wrong. You know, if I go and get some advice, which I always have to because I don't know what I'm doing, you know, I'll go to my local nursery. I'll say, look, I've got this kind of place. What should I plant in it? And they'll say, an example, astilbes, lovely plants that have kind of feathery plumes of flowers in pink, pinks and whites. Yes, they said they should do fine there. And I planted them and they didn't do fine. They died. <laughs> But instead of feeling stressed about that, I just actually thought, well, now I know not to plant them there next time, which is not a, a version of me I particularly recognise, but it's a version I quite like. Mm. You know, I think it's making me more comfortable with mistakes and more comfortable with failure, I guess. And as Christians, that's a good thing for all of us, I think. You know, Peter is the patron saint of falling flat on your face, isn't he? Yeah. He's the patron saint of, of bluster and, and mistakes, but actually coming back round again. You know, and, and I love the fact that that same Peter who did fall flat on his face, later on when he writes his letters, there's such a tenderness in them. And I think it's a tenderness born of experiencing for himself what it was like to make the mistakes and come back from the brink. He has a lovely phrase in his first letter where he talks about faithful, faithfully administering the, the grace of God. But actually the Greek says faithfully administering the rainbow grace of God. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? You know, the, the grace in all its many shades and hues. And so possibly not on the day it happens, but the day after it happens, every time I make a mistake in the garden, actually I kind of thank God for it because it teaches me about making mistakes in a way that's not really related to the garden, it's related to life. And even with those mistakes, as it says in Malachi, that we are treasured possessions of God. And I, I was really struck by how actually you look in a way also for God's treasuring creation in your garden and where some of us would, you know, turn our noses up to fungi randomly appearing when we got back from, from our travels as what happened to you, you actually whipped your camera out and saw the beauty in it. Yes, that was interesting actually because this was my, my first full year in Project Garden and I was really looking forward to the autumn of all four seasons. That's the one I love the most. And then suddenly I was called away on a medical emergency 
And uh, by the time I came back, autumn had started. Not only that, but everywhere I looked in the garden, there were hundreds and hundreds of little toadstools. But do you know what, Vicky? They were beautiful. They were, they were far more beautiful than anything I'd planted. And they'd just planted themselves. You know, they were like little tiny parasols with these perfect gills underneath and all different shades and colours. I was thrilled. Uh, and it was a reminder to me, once again, that I'm the undergardener. I'm not the gardener. You know, God had done all of that with no intervention of any kind from me. Uh, and I think I've always been a photographer. Now I'm a photographer combined with gardening. And being a photographer teaches you to look for details, but gardening has done that even more so. Uh, just about a week ago, we had our first very serious frost of the year, which I love. I love a really cold and crisp day. So, of course, straight out on my camera and in my bird bath at the far end of the garden, there's a little pottery figure. And on it was an ice formation such as I had never seen. It was like candy floss. Uh, so I took a photo, put it up on Twitter and somebody came back to me and said, oh, it's called hair ice and it's incredibly rare. Wow. Uh, it turns out it's um, a chemical reaction between a fungus on old wood and the ice crystals as they form. And it only happens very rarely and very occasionally. And so for two or three hours, I had this spectacular formation in the garden. And in some ways, it makes it more precious that it doesn't last. I feel that with um, you know, flowers that only flower for a season, too. We, we maybe learn to appreciate them all the more because they're not going to be around for long. It's like rain, isn't it? Because at one point you talk about how rain deeply penetrates the soil and yeah. is yeah. crucial for plants to grow. And yet, in all honesty, as Christians, we don't really like the stormy days in our faith and with God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I realised that this, this conversion to being a gardener was really quite serious one day in the summer when I looked out and saw the rain hammering it down and thought, oh, good. <laughs> this, was, this was not a way I'd ever been before. But actually, yeah, rain does the garden far more good than any watering that you do artificially, you know, because it does go on and on and it has time to penetrate. And I think there's something there too, isn't there, about um, the way we absorb God's word. Mm. You know, we, if, if we dash in and dash out again, it's not going to penetrate the surface. We might retain it for the next hour, but it probably disappears. Whereas if we kind of expose ourselves to it on the longer term, it maybe lingers with us more. And the, these are lessons that have been physical, practical ones in the garden, but I end up reflecting on them in a spiritual way uh, because, well, we're, we're complex beings, aren't we? We're physical and we're spiritual. And for me, the garden has been a space where the dividing line between those two has become so thin as to be almost imperceptible. And is this where, I guess, the exploration of eco-theology comes into this? Because even before the pandemic, we were hearing about doctors wanting to prescribe gardening and how fascinating it was when we were thrust into lockdown for those of us privileged to have space in nature, back gardens, even window ledge boxes. It was to those environments that we turned to get some kind of, I don't know, a different perspective in a way. Just thinking about, was it the old basketball hoop that you transformed into a different window in the garden? Somehow yeah. being a part of creation offers that different perspective, especially when we are in relationship with God. Yes, and, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, during that, the, 
the time of that very strict lockdown, the world became the place just outside our door, didn't it? Whether that was a balcony or a garden, you know, we, we realised that we were going to have to draw on that in terms of our interaction with nature and with the wider world. I think we were allowed one walk a day, but not everyone had somewhere to walk. And again, I think in a, in a very helpful way, if you're environment is restricted it obliges you to make better use of it it obliges you to look harder and look deeper and see the hand of god in in that that small space and i think that was a a very good experience for me um because you know it's a great privilege to be able to travel isn't it but when we couldn't travel i think we all found that god's provision was right there on our doorstep we just had to look a little bit harder we just had to concentrate a little more and both of those are skills that are good for us both physically and spiritually and this whole thing about ecotheology is really interesting because i was a few months into this and i was sitting down with a friend having a coffee talking about the garden and you know when we have a new hobby we become become a bit of an evangelist for it don't we you know i was waxing lyrical about all the good it was doing me and this person who is not a christian but is a very experienced counselor kind of nodded sagely and said oh yeah well it's it's ecotherapy you know, she said, that's why it's socially prescribed because of the things you're talking about. You know, it's affecting your mental state and you're sleeping better and, you know, you're being reflective. And, and I went home from that thinking, yep, yeah, I could see that. But then I thought, well, no, it's more than that. It's eco-theology for me because it is eco-therapy. It's doing me good, but it is also doing my kind of spiritual muscle good, if you like. You know, it's exercising that and it's making me reflect on truths which I always knew to be there but reflecting on them in a different way. And that's been tremendously helpful. And one of the things that led to me writing the book was because I had started to share about some of this. We have a a monthly senior citizens lunch, and I would often talk about it there. I write a column in the local newspaper. I would often talk about it there. All through the lockdown year, I was doing live local services on our local radio station, and I would talk about it there. And it was an older friend of mine who said, well, the thing is, this gives you a connection because over 40% of the population would identify gardening as their favourite leisure pastime. So, yeah, it did give a connection. And I've been finding that because lots of people have some experience of some of what is in here. So it's lovely to have that bridge to them. And that's what you share throughout the book, isn't it? Each chapter shares your own personal experience, some of the gospel, but then also a helpful prayer, albeit sometimes extremely short, but at least a way of connecting with God, particularly if perhaps prayer isn't something you've overly explored. Yeah, and I had a really interesting conversation with uh, what I'd call a gardening friend of mine, very, very experienced, and she's given me a lot of tips, uh, but would describe herself as not in any way, shape or form religious. But because of the gardening connection, I gave her a copy of the book. And she came back to me a couple of weeks later. So I'm keeping it on my bedside table. I'm reading some every night. And she said, well, you know, I don't really do religion, but I love the prayers. Isn't that fascinating? Mm. You know, and the fact that they are quite brief and they're very honest and they're not flowery, (laughs) I think actually has enabled her to relate to them. And I'm absolutely thrilled about that. Absolutely delighted that someone who can say I'm not religious can also say, but I love these prayers and I want to read them because that's got to be a good thing. It's like, you know, wedging the church door open, isn't it? So people can come in. Uh, And I think this is another means of doing that. 
You're listening to Life Issues on UCB. It's wonderful to have Richard Littledale as our guest today as we explore more of his book, Tales of an Undergardener, Finding God in the Garden, and it's published by Authentic Media. Richard, there are so many plants that have stories, and at one point you do talk about this link between plants, I guess, in a way, commemorating acts of God, moments of significance in our life, thanks to God. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I don't know whether I should ask, but how is the olive tree doing? Uh, well, I'll explain the, the background to this, first of all. When I was inducted as pastor of my current church, Newbury Baptist, uh, I spoke to the children's deacon and I said, look, I really want the children to be part of that act of induction because I'm their pastor too. And uh, they came up with some questions to ask me about, you know, will you teach us the stories of Jesus? And, you know, will you lead us towards him? Yeah. So they had their own mini induction as part of the service. And at the end of that, they presented me with an olive tree in a pot with all their names written on the outside. Uh, And the, the hope was that, you know, it would grow as they did. Well, I became slightly terrified about this because I felt like it was barometer of how I was doing spiritually, you know, but it's okay. It's doing well. Um, About two years into it being here, suddenly it looked like it was dying, you know, and all the leaves curled up and it went dry. And uh, I went to one person who suggested it was some awful thing called vine weevil. And then went to somebody else who said, probably just need a bigger pot. (laughs) So I put it in a bigger pot and it's fine now, thankfully. So uh, every time I look out at it and every time it looks a bit messy, you know, with branches not really growing in a nice shape, but going off in another direction. I think of the faces of those children who gave it to me. And I think how different they all are and how their lives are all taking different directions. And I just love it. It's become this kind of echo of something much greater. What have you learned through your experience of of planting seeds, though? And I guess this idea of planting seeds of faith in other people's lives as well, because we've talked a lot about the plants that have been rescued off the hospital shelf or that you've been given or the (laughs) ones recommended to you. But you have dabbled in uh, growing from seeds. Yes. And I can't believe how magical I find it. You know, we all grew seeds as children with the mustard and crust, didn't we? We all did that thing where you took the top off an egg and you, you know, drew a face on it and then you planted mustard and crust and it grew the hair. So it's not like it's new to me, but just amazed. Now, I had some sunflower seeds that I'd been given to my first, at the end of my first year in Project Garden, someone gave me a block of sunflower seeds. It looked like a chocolate bar. It was actually kind of coconut fibre with seeds embedded in it. And so I started that off on the window ledge uh, in about March. So it was a nice sunny place and they started to grow and then I pricked them out. Then eventually I put them out in pots in the garden. And, you know, by the summer, these sunflowers were taller than the window. So outside the window ledge where they had grown, they were now blocking out the light. And I found that nothing short of miraculous. You know, that something half the size of my fingernail had now become a plant that was six or seven feet tall. And I know we all know that stuff. We all learnt it at school. But somehow to see it and to have a hand in it felt like an enormous privilege. And and I think one of the faith lessons there, um, you know, there was nothing at all that was in any way clever that I did to bring that about. All the clever stuff was inside the seed. Mm. Yeah, And we're told that the the gospel is sown like seed and all the clever stuff is inside it already. It's not up to you or I to make it powerful. It's not up to you or I to make it effective. 
all of that is already written in already. Uh, and you know, I'm not great with planting seeds. I'm a bit hand-fisted and I'm kind of learning. Uh, and there's some things I probably won't do this year that I did last year. But I think what I'm seeing again and again is, you know, I look at a tiny seed, let's say a, a seed for um, well, a sunflower, and you think, well, that, that plant is inside that seed already. God has put it there. And that's a little miracle. And it's a little miracle repeated over and over again, which is so so heartening really so heartening it's about creating the right conditions isn't it around the seed that's being planted and making the space to wonder and to wonder at god and what he's doing in our lives what he's growing and creating we can't have a conversation yeah. about gardening without talking about the garden of eden and your book really raised some interesting questions which i guess i've never really contemplated the idea that the garden that we have it never stays static so what must the garden of eden have been like and this idea was it perfectly formed or how did it come about yeah yes i mean i speculate a bit in the book about when god created it did he create it you know in in a in a finger clip in, in a flash yeah. or did it come in waves like our gardens tend to you know were there the tiny plants on the ground first and then the trees up above them and then the grass i don't know you know i'd, I'd love to know uh, and we're not told any of that but i do think as i started to research it because I, I wanted the first couple of chapters to be about the theology of, of, of the whole thing so i started to research it what you see is this recurrent kind of dream of the garden comes back you know once adam and eve are driven out of eden the notion of that garden a perfect place where it was possible to encounter God never leaves them. You know, and when they are on the Exodus, in their heads is that dream of a plot of land that is theirs where they can grow things and tend it. And when they then settle in the promised land, one of the things they are promised is that they will be able to have land and will be able to raise uh, plants and, and crops for themselves. And of course, by the time we get to the very end, by the time we get to the new Eden, there are the trees growing by the water with their leaves for the healing of the nations. And it seems to me there is this thread right the way through, literally from the creation of Eden to the, to the New Jerusalem, that is about having that space where we encounter God in the most natural way possible. And we get just a tiny glimpse, don't we, of Eden before it went wrong, where it would seem that God was in the habit of walking there in the evenings. Isn't that lovely? Mm. You know, it's almost like having a friendly next door neighbour who's going to pop round in the evening and say, how was your day? And, and we've lost that, but we'll come back to it. We're promised that we will come back to it. And it was lovely to spend some time reflecting on that and to feel how deeply this theme runs all the way through scripture if you just look for it. I've got uh, an old apple tree in my garden and it sits just left of centre in my lawn. But what I'm discovering is that the roots go all the way to both fences. And I think I discovered that when I started looking into scripture, that the roots of this idea of the garden as a place to encounter God run right the way through in ways that quite took me by surprise. In the book, you also look briefly, I guess, at how redemption can be found in a way by the act of gardening, thinking of, of that project in New York. I'd never come across that working with prisoners. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I, and again, I think some of the research 
drove me to looking into how gardening is used. You know, there's a, a great history of gardening in the penal system and also in the, the sanatoria, you know, in the places where we were struggling with, with mental ill health. And one, there was one study in the 19th century where the, the poorer patients in the sanatoria who couldn't pay for their own care were put to work in the gardens. And most of them recovered more quickly than the people who didn't need to do that. And then, yes, you often get it used within the prison system where people whose lives have gone wrong for all kinds of reasons now find that they can tend a patch of earth and they can make it go right. And it might be, you know, a metre across with a few tomatoes in it. But actually, as the, if they come to that as a person whose life has been a bit of a train wreck, to actually see, look, I can tend this and buy some fairly simple things I can make it grow and flourish. That's tremendously healing. And yes, it, you, you mentioned it in the, in the book. I talk about this project in, in New York where a lot of people who've been on Rikers Island then join in with a kind of interns program being trained within the prison. Then when they come out of prison are then being put to work tending the green spaces of New York. And every one of those green spaces is the reflection of a life which is starting to go right, which was going wrong, which I, I find to be a wonderful thing. The garden is a fascinating place in that it has traces of the past. We're very much in the present with it, trying to maintain it and grow it and see it flourish. But it's also a place of looking to the future as well. And so that idea that we are temporary gardens of the patch of earth the life that God gives us. How do you look to the future, especially knowing that Project Garden isn't always going to be yours and one day you may relocate and have to grow another garden? Yeah, and that's been a really interesting thing because I've never felt this invested in a patch of ground before. You know, This is completely new to me. But the nature of local pastoral ministry is that you do it for a while. It, it's a relay race. You know, and There comes a point where you pass the baton on to the next person. And so, you know, every hour that I've invested in this garden will actually be a down payment for the person who comes after me. You know, I can't take it all with me. You know, that I'm sure if the day comes when I move, I'll take some of the potted things with me, but of course, most of it will have to stay. But again, that's been one of those lessons that is actually a theological truth reflected back to me in the physical world. Because the work of building the kingdom is a relay race too, isn't it? None of us build our own little empires. We're all contributing towards God's greater kingdom. And there were godly people who came before us and there will be saints who come after us. And we stand in between those two. And it's quite a humbling thing. It's quite a humbling thing to, to tend this garden and keep it beautiful, thinking, well, I shan't you know, be watching these flowers till the day I die. I'll move on at some point. But that's quite good for you, actually, because that's true of anything that you do for God in the kingdom, isn't it? Uh, you, you are investing in it so that others after you may benefit from it. That's been quite a salutary lesson, really. I wonder, as we draw a conversation to a close, if you would pray for those who've been inspired by what you've been sharing today, perhaps keen to venture into their own garden or grab a pot and have a go at growing something from seed, but most of all, engaging with God in that meaningful relationship that he longs to have with each of us. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Let's do that. Uh, Father, we thank you for the many reflections of yourself that you have left all around about us. 
Thank you for the reflection of you in the sky above and the natural world at our feet. And thank you too that we can see you reflected in the things that grow, whether that's a, a tiny pot on a window shelf or whether it's a plot of land. Thank you that in those things and in that act of caring and creating, and then in the miracle of things growing and flourishing, we see your goodness reflected back to us. Help us to be good students, taught by the things that you provided for us, we pray. And as we tend them, and as we see them grow, thank you that we are growing too. Help us to keep on doing so, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are many more tales to discover with Richard's book, so we would gladly recommend a fascinating read. You get a copy. It's called Tales of an Undergardener Finding God in the Garden. Richard Littledale, thank you for being our guest today on Life Issues. Thank you very much. Annuals, grasses, perennials, shrubs, climbers, trees, we could go on. But it is remarkable how God can use the very landscape around us and how we interact with it to bring healing, especially after bereavement like Richard. During the isolation of a pandemic, offering reminders of God's presence. As Richard says in his book, in the act of preparing, cultivating, planting and tending a patch of God's earth, we are transformed too. Thanks for listening to UCB's Life Issues and join us again next week for another episode.